Hello and welcome to the Biscuit Tin, the all new Biscuit Tin, as we revamp uh, an old cynic uh, favourite podcast uh, to bring it into uh, this season and to, uh, yeah, just give it a kind of fresh coat of paint and uh, look at a lot of uh, interesting stuff that's happened uh, since we last recorded. I'm your host, Christopher Gallagher. Uh, and as always, uh, this is uh, the brainchild of the wonderful, the fantastic Martin Friel. Hello, Martin. How are you, friend? I am very good, and thank you for persisting with me with my IT issues this evening. Greatly appreciated. We have had IT issues, but like any uh, financial department, we uh, hide the problems and elevate the uh, the the good sides of it all. And uh, we've got Martin involved, so great to have Martin involved. We also have Ian Duggan. Hello, Ian. How are you? Good. Good evening, Chris. Um, maintaining the one Ian rule <laughs> on the biscuit tin. That's. Uh, that's a cynic rule. So happy to uh, fulfil the Ian quota um, for the next few episodes, and then we can move on to new Ian Beale. Maybe he'll come on. Yeah, let's... the fictitious character Ian Beale. Yes, the fictitious character. Uh, that's our name. Oof. Finnegan-y. Uh Yikes. Yeah. Um, so it's great to have uh, uh, Ian uh, Duggan, as we say, um, involved. Um, and uh, obviously Martin being part of the original Biscuit Tin panel. Um, we just wanted to kind of relaunch it. There's been a lot happening. And, you know, the Biscuit Tin is a podcast that we get asked about probably most. Um, what we're going to try to do with this kind of uh, reimagining, relaunching of it is potentially going to record once a month, um, potentially twice a month, just depending uh, what uh, is available, whether the panel's available, if there's anything specific that comes up. But we'll definitely at least do um, once a month. Uh, we've already got a couple of episodes planned out and such, so we'll look out for that. Um, this is an opportunity as well for you guys to ask questions of the panel. Um, we've got a couple of questions we're going to start off with today. Um, not too many because we didn't want to kind of bombard and you know fit everything into one episode um so what we're going to do is we're basically going to kind of revamp every restart start from the beginning this is kind of year zero in regards to the biscuit tin and we're going to just kind of break down everything to do with how football clubs run how celtic are run how rangers are run sustain sustain sustainable models um and just kind of where we are and what we're moving forward with um before we do that, I just thought we'd have a nice kind of, uh, I've kind of I'm dropping this on uh, Martin and Ian, uh, but we kind of talked about it briefly yesterday. Um, potentially Celtic could have a windfall of around 11 million quid if uh, uh, Frimpong is sold for the 50 million pounds um, that is kind of quoted. Maybe it might be more, who knows. But Martin Friel, let me ask you this. Um, if Celtic, at the end of this season were given essentially the 30% fee that they got and um, that was in the contract to when they sold Frimpong. If you were the chairman of Celtic or if you were on the board and you had £11 million at your disposal that kind of, you know, because, you know, players might not fulfill their potential, you don't know how it's going to work out, but it's an £11 million that they probably wasn't accounted for, what would you do with it? I would treat it as a one-off bonus and I would invest it in something that, in, in with all other things considered, you wouldn't be able to actually put the money into. So I would like, pump like cash from... Uh, I'd pump it into like data analytics. I'd pump it into like sports science. I'd pump it into the areas that we probably perceive as being underfunded or areas where other clubs across Europe have probably had a head start on us and are probably more well developed so I would 
I would throw the cash into that in the hope that you either create your own or a new batch of frimpongs that would then generate more income or scout and identify those sort of gems that are a million pound that you turn into, you know, a, a big sum of money later on. I'd I'd avoid taking the sum of money and investing it directly into transfer fees. I, th- I, th- I think a boring answer, Martin. Come on, I know, <laughs> I, know on, it's a, I know it's a boring eleven million answer, pounds. But, but put it this way: if, if we're on, if we're about to get a Champions League windfall, that's the money you spend on your um, transfer fees. Answer, Martin. <laughs> all right, big shot. Hotel, I'll, I'll kill you. I really will. <laughs> um, all right, big shot. What would you spend on? I would take the eleven million pounds, and I would go and buy Kelleher from Liverpool. I would do a significant upgrade at goalkeeper because I think that's the biggest... Like, if we can really upgrade at goalkeeper and get that ball-playing keeper who's a better shortstopper than Joe Hart and, and can kind of give some of those intangibles as well, I think that's the sort of really big splash in the transfer market that, that could actually get you to the point where you could comfortably start planning on Champions League revenue every season. And and I don't think there's another position where um, you could guarantee such an uplift for that. And, and, and I don't think it's an unrealistic fee. Liverpool are looking at other goalkeepers at the minute, you know, whether that's as a replacement for Alisson. It's, you know, if you look at the the sort of Danny Ward fee, £12 million, again, like, I, I don't think it's unreasonable. He's Irish. He's, by all accounts, an excellent goalkeeper. And that's what I would do. But Martin's data and analytics might, in five years' time, find the next Kelleher. So who knows? Maybe maybe it's the wrong call. Exactly, yeah. You could uh, get the grassroots Kelleher. Uh, yeah, that's it. it. Um, Mark Martin, um, you, you mentioned the hotel there. Before we kind of break into the kind of rundown, because we've uh, created a, a really succinct and nice rundown. Um, you know, I was at Celtic Park on Saturday for the derby, and uh, I was waiting to pick up a, a ticket for someone. Claire was waiting to pick up a ticket from for, from someone, and I was standing, and it would have been about twelve o'clock. And I looked out, and the entire area right in front of Celtic Park was just crowded with people, all excited and wanting obviously to kind of get involved and stuff but not it was too early to go in the stadium for a lot of people would should Celtic be investing in a, a kind of pre-game area uh and how do how would that lead on to the the kind of hotel just your kind of thoughts and this this is something I'm throwing at you as well because uh, we've not spoken in quite a while about the biscuit tin so what's your kind of thoughts on those two aspects oh, I definitely think there's like a match day experience investment to be made for the benefit of fans but the hotel idea, I just think, is it's going to cost you so much money to build the infrastructure, and, and it's hard to make money out of hotels at the best times as well. So I, that, that specific example, I think, is a bit of a waste of money. But there's definitely value to be had in that kind of turning your turning Celtic Park into a four or five hour experience rather than a ninety minute experience. I, I, that there's definitely money to be made in that, and also talking more as a fan than kind of a kind of financial advisor, I would like to have a more of a space that's better for you know who wouldn't want to meet up earlier at the ground, 
get a drink at the ground. Um, you know, just I, I think there's done the Celtic way is a vast improvement from what say ten years ago. But there's definitely more things they can do in that space. Ian, I'll bring you in. Um, I like I totally agree with Martin, and I found myself. What's that idiot that always films himself at Rangers games, even when they're losing? And it's really funny to watch that guy. Right? Yeah, I can't even remember. It doesn't even need to have a name. Just the Rangers idiot, we'll call him. Right? Well, anyway, he had a video of the, him at New Edmiston Edmiston House on Saturday. So obviously they had no away fans. So they opened that up, and I was sitting looking at it, and I was like, Do you know that looks fucking really good. Like, if we had something similar. Um, How many people does it hold? A, it, I think it, it, it certainly, like, it was like long benches, so it would be like maybe six, eight hundred. That's they the seem... wrong answer, Ian. It holds six to eight hundred subhuman scum. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> but I think when you look at the the finances of that, like because, and we'll, we'll get on to the, the position that Rangers find themselves in, um, the, it seems to be a very marginal financial case to do something like that. I've read some of the. You find yourself going down a rabbit hole and yeah. like on a follow follow thread, and apparently they were hoping to turn it into like a gig venue. So like the plan for it is that it'll be like used like six days a week, and you're like, well, who on earth is going to Ibrox to watch a? you know, a band that you would watch at St. Luke's, right? It's sort of that sort of size. Like, you're mental. Nobody's doing that. Fair enough, you've got the underground, but that's not happening. So you have to do it in a way that it's, that it's, it's either for the benefit of the community or it, it's something that washes its face, not just for four or five hours around a match day. Um, and I think that's the real challenge with it. But I think, I think if you can get that balance right, it could be amazing. Yeah, I can agree more. Uh, Martin, any kind of final thoughts on that before we move on? Um, no, I, I really don't think we should be giving Ian much more airtime on how much uh, how much he follows Rangers fans <laughs> on Twitter and on uh, <laughs> follow follow etc. See, see, this is what the biscuit tin needed a bit of needle. A bit of needle. <laughs> but Martin and I have known each other twenty years, so so there's you know there's that there's that the the uh, the needle of of. Um, of of familiarity, there you go. Absolutely, finish that sentence. Um, you'd know where to go there. You had no idea. Um, let's kind of just for you know, the, as we say, you know, the, the biscuit tin's been yeah, a podcast that we, we we've been doing since we went full time, and you know, we, the, we've kind of from the very first episode we kind of broke things down. But I think it's time for a refresh. Um, I just want to open this idea of football club finance, and I'm going to throw this to Martin, and then Ian, if you want to come in and points and kind of you can both kind of talk through it and discuss it. Essentially, Martin, what I'm asking is, how does a football club make money? You've got three key revenue streams for a football club. So number one is your ticket sales and all the kind of additional match day income you would generate through that. So programmes, um, pies, etc. So let's call that match day income. You then have... Your second main income stream is kind of television and media distribution. Uh, and wow. we would probably kind of lump into that kind of uh, money you would get from Champions League, etc. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then the third one, and this is one where Celtic have really kind of stepped up in the last little while, is the kind of 
merchandising and um, ad- additional income uh, and the late set of accounts show that they, they are really sort of stepping up in that space. And that, I think that's something that the, they were quite keen to highlight when they were calling out the numbers. Certainly, the, I mean, they've really struck gold with Adidas in terms of the quality of the, the, the stuff that they're re- releasing. So, yeah, if it, all football clubs kind of fall under those kind of three main categories. Uh, great stuff. Uh, Mark, uh, Ian, um, sorry, Ian, do you want to come in and uh, add on to that? Well, I guess and you then have your player sales sort of on top of that, and we can kind of get to that. The merchandise is really interesting. Um, I guess the life cycle of a commercial contract would suggest that you go into a four-year deal and then the way to extract value is that you retender that and, and then you get you move to somebody else and you get and you do another four-year deal. And that's kind of what we've done, Nike to New Balance to Adidas. I think there's there's sort of magic with Celtic and Adidas. Like, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine that Adidas Celtic must be one of the the biggest performing brands that 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 that, that Adidas have. Um, and and actually, I wonder if there's something around kind of doubling down on. You know, do you take that rather than saying that you're going to go and tender that every three or four years? Do you say actually we want to work? we want to make this a partnership like how do we strategically support each other my god do, do you know, every it feels like every four weeks we've got more amazing stuff that we're just opening our wallets for and it's not seeming to stop anytime soon it kind of just feels like it's such a good fit like lock that in rather than i don't know going to two brothers from liverpool selling jerseys out there oh, that's sorry custody they're they're um they're a prestige brand. I mean, sorry. Um, see, in regards to the to what you were just saying there, though, is there not maybe a, an an ailment and a risk um, of fatigue with that though? Because the the last set of you know tops, you know the retro nineties one. Um, as much as people maybe didn't, some people liked the design and some people didn't. I guess the design is you know in the high eye of the beholder, right? So some people like it, some people won't. But I think people's eyes bulged at the price. And, you know, there's a real danger that you just completely outprice your market with, you know, a high, high brand. Is that right or wrong? You, you do, but then you look at the Sambas and I would, I, and I, I, I'm a total sucker for Adidas. Like I was in that queue. There was 36,000 people in the queue in front of me. Now I got a pair, probably not going to wear them. I put them away. See if next season they do a pair of Adidas superstars that are Celtic. I mean, fuck me. Like, I'm I'm, I'm there again. And I do get your point, Gal. I, I do think. But, like, they've been able to do, like, the the sort of the, the pride Adidas stuff. Like, it, 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 you can kind of get to the point where you can get quite segmented with it. And it, it's just their creative and our brand just seems to work really well. Um, far better than than we've had for for. Decades since uh, Umbro, probably. Yeah, Martin, what, what what's your kind of what's your kind of thoughts on on the th- kind of just well, what's your thoughts on that as well? But of, of the three, what's the most important, and what's the one that we can influence most? So, football and stadium operations has got a bit of a ceiling to it because there's only so many seats that Celtic Park has. There's only so many games that you play. There's only so much you can charge for a season ticket. You can't target increasing that sum significantly unless you have 
far more matches being played. So if, if you got to later rounds of the Champions League, that would sort of bump up the sum a little bit more. And um, so there's a bit of a ceiling to that. Now I'm going to talk about floors and ceilings quite a lot tonight. Um, merchandise is one that can be exploited further, but as you said, it's the one that carries the greatest amount of risk because if you are seen to exploit, because in essence, merchandise is, is effectively how much money can you squeeze out fans. If yeah. you're being seen to take the piss and just take fans for granted, that will come back and bite you really, really hard. So that one has a, a potential potential for the kind of ceiling to go up, but you've got to be really careful with it. And then the kind of other commercial activities, etc., and where your TV revenue comes from, that one is the one that's kind of got the greatest amount of flux to it because if you have a great year in the Champions League, that sum will really pop. If you go out in round one, you don't get any kind of Champions League income or whatnot, that sum can really drag you down really quite quickly. So it's, I would say, football and stadium operations is your kind of bread and butter. And then the other two are the ones that the club can make decisions that subsequently, you know, hopefully generate growth that's then. As Ian said, ideally, you want to create ways in which the club generates more revenue, not just purely leaning upon fans' money. That's because for the best player in the world, you, Celtic fans put their hand in their pocket so much for the club that there's only so much that a fan can really do in order to help Celtic keep up with other leagues across Europe at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Ian, do you want to come in? My understanding of it is if you look at our match day revenue, if you look at our merchandising, like it's pretty top quartile. If you compare us to sort of major European teams, teams in the Premiership, you're kind of almost going to be like for like in terms of costs and, and, and revenue. The big thing that falls down, and I think we'll pick this up on a future episode, is is media. Um, you know, this is a really old example. Like when Fulham finished twentieth, we we got we and we won the the SPL. We got like three million pounds in uh, a TV deal. Fulham got a hundred million pounds for coming last, and and like that disparity's only got worse. So that that's again. That 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 deal is a major ceiling in terms of our our sort of revenue income. See see with the um see if you take the TV. Let me let me ask you both this right because it's really not fair to compare or com- contrast these two ideas right. But see if you simply took away the TV money from let's say Celtic right, and you compare them with I'm just going to pick Aston Villa right because they're a pretty big English club. Mm -hmm. Um, If you took away the TV money and it was just based on ticket sales, you know, commercial and merchandise and stuff and just bums on seats, you know, and how the clubs run, do you think we'd as big as them and it's just the TV money or is there something else holding us back? I I, I might defer to Martin. I think we'd probably be bigger in terms of that sort of thing. Martin, what do you think? we would we would probably generate more revenue, however, because they operate in a bigger league, they're more likely to be selling players at a higher premium than yeah, we yeah. are. So so it's it's it would make a difference. And also it 
it's almost impossible to compare because in essence they're operating costs. I mean, if their TV money was pulled, they'd be bust overnight because they, their expenses would be astronomical relative to Celtic. So it's, I, I think probably they would still find ways to eke out a bit more money by player trading, etc. Yeah, fair enough. Um, well, let's look at Celtic. Um, you know, we, we, we're going to look at Celtic. We're going to look at Rangers. That'll be a delight. Um, and we can look at their models and how they compare and contrast. Um, there was obviously the, the recent accounts and stuff have came out. Martin, we'll, we'll start with yourself. Um, what position are Celtic currently in? Talk us through it. So the accounts that they've published, probably they came out quite a long time ago, albeit... We're comparing it to Rangers accounts that came out only a matter of days ago, but it's the same period that we're talking to. So it's 2021 to 2022. So basically, you're, the the season that concluded with us winning the double. So we draw the line uh, on the 30th of June, and that's your point in time reflection of the company accounts. Um, so this is the, the year where we got over COVID and we were sort of back to normal. So, for example, our revenue was at 88 million versus only 60 million back in 2021. Um, and our, there's an operating expense of 91.7 million versus 74.4, but I don't really get too fussed about that. You get down to the profit and loss. So, in essence, in 2021, they lost 11.5 million, which if you remember way back when we did the biscuit tin around the, um, just before these counts, we were worried that that sum could be astronomical. It could have been like 25, 30 million, the amount of money was lost during COVID. But they managed to kind of keep it relatively low. So they lost 11.5 million in 2021, and then they made a profit of 6.1 million in 2022. What I would say is, and it's important to consider this with all football clubs, is these accounts are just a snapshot point in time as at 30th of June. On the 1st of July, the accounts look different again. And all, what you tend to find is companies will ensure that they land in a really positive position come the 30th of June. So exactly, it's not like there's 6.1 million of, you know, cash just sitting ready. It, that profit is just an accounting profit. In essence, that money is continually moved, sort of invested um, will have already been spent or we've got more money coming in, etc. It's it, it's not it's not worthwhile getting too caught up around making a profit or loss unless of course you're booking seismic losses year after year after year. That's that's a sign of an endemic issue. So overall, without getting sort of drawn into numbers, it was encouraging to see that Celtic were back to effectively balancing the books. Um there was a couple of bits and pieces quite interesting. This is the year that basically they did book Olivier and Cham basically just being written off. And so there, there's the way you make a the way you book a transfer, if you rather than pay for the full sum of the transfer up front, well you pay for it up front, but from an accounting perspective, what you do is you stage out the cost of that for the cost of the transfer for the duration of the player's contract. Um, but because we basically tore up in Cham's contract and just let let him leave, we had to make uh, what, what are they calling it? 
it would be, I guess, in capital to like in, they take an call it a write off, but I guess it's right, yeah. You're taking uh, you make an impairment and a write off basis. You write off, like, say, the equivalent of like a million, a million and a half quid, which is kind of not ideal, but that's the kind of thing that happens if you don't manage your transfers correctly and, and you end up having to make like financial adjustments to cover the cost for that. So, but. That being said, 2022 is when they probably generate the most amount of income from player trading because they sold, obviously, Edouard, they sold Ayer, they sold Christie, etc. So all in all, it was a really positive year and it sets us up nicely for next again season where it wouldn't be it wouldn't be unreasonable to expect over 100 million in revenue for the next set of accounts that will come out. Well, probably won't seem to about September, October time this year. Mark, uh, Ian, do you come in? Yeah, I, I mean, I just I think it's it's a useful baseline of what uh, a kind of uh, it, it's a good year in terms of the players that we've sold, but it's a year, it's a season without Champions League revenue, and I think that's going to be as as Martin points out, that's going to be the big jump that we'll see in the in the year end twenty three accounts and. I guess your big question becomes how confident are you that that revenue, that 30 to 40 million pounds, depending on, on how many other teams are in it, um, how much do you start to bake that in? How much is that like actually you, like that's, that's crystal, like you're going to, you're going to go for that. And that means that everything else goes up. I think they're probably the club is still geared around that these are bonuses and and oh it's a bit extra um but actually you might get to the point where you can start to say well well actually we're pretty confident that that that, that is going to be our operating revenue and therefore what do you do with it um i think the other element and 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 it's really interesting when you look at the squad turnaround that Ange has done and and the outlay like I, I saw something ridiculous. I think it's been like a net eight million pound spend or something like that. Like <laughs> this is, um, you know, for lightning to strike twice in the one city is going to be, you know, it's going to take an awful lot for for our friend Ian Beale's brother um, to 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 do that sort of thing. And and I suspect when we go on to talk about Rangers, that that is the sort of magic they will be hoping to pull out. But um, yeah, really, really impressive, I think, from where we've got to with, as I say, relatively small spend. Martin, what's what, how would you describe Celtic's strategy? Because as you, as, as Ian mentioned, we, we don't count on the Champions League money because it's not something, obviously last season, oh, sorry, this season and next season is guaranteed. And then there's the big shift and change in European structure of the Champions League and everything. So we don't count on that money. What would you say the strategy is about about how the clubs run? Um, so there's a couple of points. First one, to be fair to the club, they do spend basically every penny that they earn. We're not a club that um, sees owners sort of take out large dividends out of prop. So we don't see people profiting from Celtic success. The, the money remains in the club by and large. There, there are some dividends, but it's it's very, very marginal in the grand scheme of things, almost negligible. So 
I'm, I'm satisfied that the club, when it generates revenue, that money is then being used to for the benefit of the club. And when I say club, not just the first team, but the youth setup, the women's team, etc. What I would say, though, of late, and this is something that we touched on a while ago, is we kind of felt as if Celtic weren't really didn't really focus how to spend that money. It was basically just a bit. They were just kind of going through the motion without actually genuinely thinking about it. And while Celtic haven't come out and publicly stated we've now got this set up, blah blah blah, um, you know, with director of football, etc. I think it's pretty clear that there is a far better structure in place as to how Celtic use their money. And the best example of that is during the January window when Juranovic and Jack Makis left. This is, that's, this is the first time that there was complete confidence that they had two guys lined up ready to go and they pressed the button and they were brought in immediately. They dropped into the team seamlessly and actually it doesn't feel like there's been a seismic transition at all. And that to me is emblematic of a club that now has a very clear strategy in terms of they understand the profile of players they're looking for, they know who their targets are, they understand which players are most likely to be leaving in the short term, they get everything lined up and it's just executed really, really well. And that that to me can only be done because they've brought in people who are good at doing that. And so when we were talking to, just at the beginning about how do we spend that sort of additional 10, 11 million that might come in, put it at that end, make us the slickest team there is in terms of identifying talent, bringing that talent and make, you know, finding those money ball signings that nobody else can find yet. That's, that's where sort of Celtic can really sort of kick on and exceed or sort of raise its ceiling, so to speak. Ian? Um, I think you, you you were sort of like in the rundown talking about positives and negatives. And I think Martin touches upon something that I think it's just something to bear in mind in terms of our outlook. Like, so I think the way that we replaced Jakimakis and JJ was exemplary. I think probably what was a surprise for a lot of Celtic fans was the scale of the transfer fees that we got. And I suspect that unless you're selling to an English club, we might have to be a little bit more realistic about the the kind of fees that we're going to get in. Now, that has a benefit because actually the fees that... If, if, if the whole sort of transfer market outside of England starts to get a little bit more sensible, then, then actually that benefits us ultimately because what we can pay relative in that market it, it's, is, is, is more. Um, but I do think it was it was interesting what our expectations of what JJ would have been. Like, you know, a, 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 a guy who came third in the World Cup, played every game apart from the third, fourth place playoff, and we sold him for £10 million. Um, and JJ, Gigi, sorry, um, is, you know, I guess there's probably a little bit more in terms of the where his stats a bit padded and things like that. And actually, is four million kind of reasonable? But again, I think we were probably like, oh, we'll get eight million for it, and we'll get twenty million for J, and it just didn't happen. So that might be something that we need to think about in terms of the player sales going forward. That they might be a little bit lower than than previous. 
Uh, Martin, obviously at the beginning we, we got the kind of three breakdowns of, you know, income with the, you know, the, the ticket sales and, you know, matched experience and the TV and, and media distribution and obviously the, the merchandising. And you've mentioned there the kind of extra kind of income, obviously something, that, again, you can't count on, but, you know, income for player transfers, player kind of trading. How much of that, how important is that for us as, as a as a, as a club should we always be? I don't, not not necessarily should we always be, but how how much does that kind of pad us and give us a little bit of security by bringing players in, developing them, and then moving them on? Is that something we really need to make sure we're doing consistently? I think just the nature of where Celtic is relative to other European clubs, we just have to become a, a team that's or a club that's more attuned to frequent turnover of players. So I don't necessarily think we've become a club that's dependent on sales in order to fund fund activity. I think we become dependent on sales because we're most likely in, going to be in a market where players see us as, a, as I've done in the past, a strong stepping stone to the next progression part of their career. And unless Celtic find continued success at a really high level, it's going to be very difficult to keep those guys, because you need to show a level of ambition to keep them. So in in years where Celtic don't reach the Champions League, player sales do kind of plug a big hole. So obviously Tierney was a, a good example of that. And I think Dembele is another one as well. But I don't necessarily think that, I mean, we've had quite a number of years where we haven't had large, or is it that under um, Postacoglu's first year, we sold quite a lot of players, but we didn't necessarily use all that money to then subsequently um, reinvest it all. As Ian said, we actually were able to rebuild the squad on a very modest budget. Um, so, yeah, it's. I, I think it's going to be our, our model will be more to do with frequent player turnover, like Juranovic's and Jack Makis's, than us being perceived as a selling club. I think that's the mindset we should be in. Uh, before we move on, I, sorry, Ian. And I was going to say, I get the impression that those are closer to football and decisions than financial decisions. Well, that's, that, that's exactly, I was going to say, I was going yeah. to say, I was going to simply ask the question and I, I was going to simply ask the question, if Ange goes, does all of that go with him? It, I think I'd, I'd said this before. I think while we don't have a director of football model at the minute, I think we have a director of football adjacent model. And I suspect that young Lowell is, is the director of football in waiting and essentially and performs a lot of those functions just now, but you would probably see Mark Lowell moving into them. Um, I think the other thing just on player sales is, is, and, and again, we'll, we'll talk about the, 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 other team in Glasgow in a second. Um, Queens, not Queens Park. Um, the other one. Um, you can't help yourself, can you? You just can't. No, just I, I try. I try. Um, one thing that we've proven with player sales is actually that, that, that there's a bit of a pedigree in terms of those players going on and doing something more. So, so you know the your Wanyamas, your Tierneys, your Van Dykes. Um, as Rangers have tried to get into this player sales model and ah, great news guys we've sold Nathan Patterson for 16 million and Calvin Bassey for 20 million and Aribo for 8 million Bassey and and Patterson have been 
you know, really not had a good time of it at their at their subsequent clubs. Arivo's been okay. I think he's kind of fallen out of favour at Southampton. And and I do think that, you know, where Rangers to have any assets to sell, which is like genuinely, like, who would you buy from that team? Um, those sorts of things kind of hang, oh, wait a minute, yeah, the, the boy Patterson, yeah, looked, looked great in the Premiership, but but he's been crocked ever since. Like, I think the fact that we've got that pedigree, like, it, it, it helps us when it comes to moving players on. Yeah, that, ped- so, that pedigree and reputation. Sorry, Martin, and you come. Yeah, so that's a, a very real thing on the continent. So Benfica are widely regarded yeah. as a, a team that um, have such a strong um, pedigree of generating players that it's no—it's almost known as the, the Benfica tax. If you buy a player from Benfica, you know you're going to have to pay more than you would usually presume for a player of that age. Nunes would be an example with Liverpool. But those those players come at a premium because there's such a strong, strong track record of generating players. And, and, and Portugal in general seems to have that. But Benfica is just kind of widely regarded as, as one of those clubs that you know you have to fork out, which is kind of remarkable then that we've been able to, to purchase um, Jota, albeit I can imagine we've got a sizable sell-on fee to sort of pass on if yeah. we do end up selling them. Um, just uh, well, listen. Let's let's go on to Rangers because there's been you know a lot of uh, a lot of stuff in the press, a lot of stuff on social media and stuff. Um, if, if only to appease Ian, you know. <laughs> of course, um, very he, good. He's very, he's, he's very sharp. He'll like uh, he'll uh, he'll uh, no doubt big them up. Um, right, Rangers. Okay, so we've got. Uh, well, I'm not even going to talk about their model versus our model we'll come to that because we want to talk about because this is something we didn't talk about with Celtic but we all talk about um turnover versus wage that ratio and how important that is um Rangers there's been a lot of kind of that they're um a, they had accounts released recently um they've got a lot of players who are I, I read a list of all the, their players that are a contract in the summer they need to do a big rebuilding job um Martin what position are Rangers in can you talk us through that Beep. So it'd be very easy to say they're in a, uh, they're in a dog's dinner, but I'm, I'm going to kind of go against the grain here. They are in as good or as bad a shape as the people who are losing money on their behalf are willing to put them in. And so there, there are a, a group of readers, shareholders, board members, etc., who for the last five, six, seven years have effectively bore the brunt of Rangers' losses. So Every time they are converting directors' loans into equity, that's basically somebody who's provided to them a loan just writing it off and taking equity in the club as well. So it's very easy to kind of say, oh, Jesus Christ, they've lost 80, 90 million over the last five, six, seven years. How are they still going? Well, the reason they're still going is basically because some rich people have effectively been happy to bear the brunt of that in order to you know, get them back into the top division. And they would probably see it as money well spent because they managed to get a title in front of no fans and then tear up the city one afternoon. So that's... I don't really... I don't see them in financial peril, but what I do see is their ceiling isn't very high because that's not a model. You cannot, in perpetuity, continue to get people to pay your costs. You've got to become sustainable club that is able to generate sufficient income in order to 
um, grow in a healthy manner. Uh, and as we've seen recently, their chairman, um, Parks, has kind of removed himself. Um, it's got to be a matter of time where other directors who've put sizable sort of chunks of money into the club have decided, you know, I've, I've given you 10, 15 million, I've enjoyed it, but I'm now, I'm, I'm tapping out. And it, if you've got a track record of losing money, it's going to become harder to bring in new people to tap for cash because not not everybody is going to be happily just handing money over to say, I go for it, you know, let's go for our second ever league title. It's, it's, not, it's not a sustainable model. So they really do need to almost re-baseline and figure out how are we actually going to become sustainable. And the frustrating thing from Rangers' perspective is they look across the city and they see Celtic are well, well on to that path and also almost looking about taking the next step up again. So they've got a really challenging next couple of years because I don't see them being able to gather fresh investors to keep propping up the club, if that makes sense. So see when, um, like, uh, you know, the the equity, as you say, the, the, so they release shares and that's basically writing off the loans. Is that it? Yeah, so what you do is, so let's say I lent you a tenner and after about three years, I got fed up of saying, Chris, do, do you know what Chris, forget, um, don't give me the tenner, but if you ever, ever make any money ever um I'll take a dividend of a penny in the pound for whatever it is that you make uh, and we'll do it that way. I know you'll never make any money. So in the grand scheme of things, I know I'm never going to get that tenner back. But let's rather than just completely write it off altogether, let's just call it equity. So I'll take one share in Chris Gallagher Limited, knowing fine well that share is going to be worth heat And that's they've continued to do that over a significant period of time. So and that, but it does dilute everybody else's. And because way, you're just you're just putting more shares into the market, and and like if you owned, oh, check me out, I've got a million Rangers shares, and I own ten percent of the club, and then they just keep issuing more shares and more shares. And it's like, oh wait a minute, I only own nine percent of the club. What's yeah, going on? you can you can do it in a certain way. You can structure your shares to be A class, B class, etc. Yeah. You know, I, you know, um, Gal, you'll be all over this with um, WWE, the amount of voting rights you get attached if you're a member of the McVan family versus yeah. other shares that are commonly available in the, the uh, so New York Stock Exchange. Just as an example, uh, all the McMahons have the A-class shares and I think the Public Limited or whatever is basically, if I was to buy shares in WWE, it would be B-class and I wouldn't have, yeah, so it's different yeah. kind of levels. Yeah. So yeah. Now, what you would find, and so Rangers, from the days of um, King, were wanting to list themselves on a stock exchange, but nobody would take them because they just didn't have the credibility. Um, now, if they were listed on a stock exchange, it would become harder to issue equity in order to write off those loans because quite rightly those who are being effectively publicly trading those shares would be questioning well wait a minute what's going on why why are my shares either being diluted or why are my voting rights being diluted etc but because they are not publicly traded they are in essence a kind of limited company it's it's kind of very difficult to pin down exactly what they are but 
it's these will be shares in a holding company. It's, it's to be honest, it, I mean, fair. A lot of businesses do this, particularly with directors' loans, etc. After a while, they, if they if the directors deem that they don't want to actually be paid back, um, and it's without if you were to put a positive spin on it for Rangers, if they went into administration, you'd far prefer to have a large equity stakeholder base that you don't need to pay back. If you've got a large debtor base, debtors are preferential in the queue, so you would actually need to pay those debtors back. Equity holders, you don't need to pay back. That's interesting. Ian, uh, Martin. Ian, Jesus Christ. So I, I, I'm... <clears throat> really keen to get Martin's thoughts on this. I I I think there is a genuine question about is there a structural deficit in in the middle of that club? And actually how long has that structural deficit existed? And I saw and, and as I say you can take Rangers tax case with a pinch of salt. But he sort of posited the other day that that actually if you look kind of almost from Murray taking over if you go from McCann taking over Celtic and rebuilding Celtic Park from that point onwards his argument was that Rangers have had a, a structural deficit essentially because Celtic could sell 10,000 extra season tickets so how have they made up that structural deficit? So it's either been made up with years of Champions League revenue, a Europa League run, right? These these are all things that bring in money. Um, cheating, like just not paying tax. Um, or currently what we've got is, is as Martin says, um, rich members of the people um, putting money in their own, uh, putting dipping in their own pockets to, to, to put that in. Like, as Martin says, how does that club get on to any sort of sustainable footing whilst trying to turn around a squad? I don't know if you you, you see it in the Scottish Cup semi as well. If you see how many players name Rangers name in their first team, forty one players or something like that, like ridiculous number of players. High, pretty high wages they're still paying, and kind of come on to that. You've got to turn that round, and you're not doing that with, you know. Yes, we might not have sold Edward or Ayer for as much money as we should have done, right? But we still got a lot of money, like Christie, like you know that was good income. There is nothing coming this summer, so it's all going to have to be done on the cheap. And now you've got the fans going, "Well, why did we spend the money in Edmiston House?" And and you just wonder how's out. I don't think they're going to go bust tomorrow. But well, when do where's you, the sustainable footing? Well, Martin, when when do they start to really worry? You don't. Ian just said it there, and you mentioned it earlier. You don't think they're kind of going to go? You know, they're going to turn lights off tomorrow. But when do they start to worry? So uh, the summer will be a big indicator as to where they are because uh, their squad needs considerable turnaround, and and the the caliber of player that they're able to attract. Because transfer fees are a bit of a transfer fees aren't a true indicator of your your buying or your purchasing power. The wages you're willing to offer are probably the most, or certainly 
wages generally higher wages mean you're most likely to be successful spending transfer money doesn't make you successful paying good wages makes you successful now sometimes they go hand in hand and if you pay a high transfer fee you're most likely going to have to pay the wages as well yeah so if rangers are still in a position where they feel comfortable enough to be signing players on good wages um that would indicate that they feel as if they have somebody or some way of continuing to keep the show on the road but if we see the caliber of player they're signing is an indication that the the they're trying to actively bring the wage bill down and we all let's almost use this as the kind of Gordon Strachan analogy where he was left with an aging squad with a high wage bill and he was actively told to bring that wage bill down you saw a significant downturn in the quality of player that was being brought in and you know that's that's where the coach at the top of the club is really significant because you're asking him to do more with less um so so this summer will be a true indicator of whether or not they're able to to maintain that level of wage investment or whether they're actually on to pull rank and and I, and I tell you what they absolutely <clears throat> will not be able to afford if you look at somebody like Rabi Matondo and the money like so by all accounts he's on about 30 grand a week and he's barely kicked a ball for them now again we talked about him in the transfer committee and there was you know, there's probably some pretty significant red flags with this guy. Um, they, they're going to have to hit every single time they spend money or commit wages. It's going to have to be five star out of the park every single time. And the degree of difficulty for that is is huge. It, the degree of dif- difficulty is huge. And what makes it even more difficult is that Postacoglu has actually just done exactly what they need. And that must yeah. be really killing them because he's done it, as you said, on a net spend of eight million, which is nothing. The players that he's brought in are, I would say, of a higher standard. The full squad is stronger in every position, and he's done it in the space of what three windows potentially. So I mean, yeah, it feels an impossible task for them, but then we've literally just seen Celtic do it. So. In some regards, it's almost Celtic have almost given the blueprint as to what they need to do, but that doesn't necessarily mean you can do a copy and paste job. It completely comes down to how good the guy at the top is at actually identifying and bringing those guys in. Well, I think there's a good little vignette in terms of how the clubs are run, right? And and it, Martin, I think you did some some research in the litigation, and we'll just I think it'd be really interesting to go through that. But if yeah. you look at the Sydney Cup, right? Now, the idea of a Celtic Rangers uh, Glasgow Derby friendly is abhorrent to me, and I'm I'm glad that it didn't happen, right? But the story goes, and and this is pretty well founded, is that Celtic were going to get six million pounds for that, and Rangers were going to get three million pounds. And when these sums were leaked to the press, and there was also a visceral reaction from both sides of the of the of the Divide. Of, of, of the divide, yeah, correct. Um, um, Rangers pulled out. So Celtic still get their £6 million. Pounds. We play every, you know, Diddy friendlies, but it was great to go out to Australia. Marketing opportunity, promotional, ex- brand extension, all this good stuff. 
rather than getting three million pounds of income by pulling out Rangers are on the hook for litigation probably to the tune of the three million um that they lost. So, you know, whichever way you want to account for that, that's a twelve million pound swing. We've gained six million pounds and well, so nine million pound swing, and they've lost three million. And that is just over a decision over over a decision. Over a decision yeah. to, to kind of, you know, make money. Um Martin, you know, we were talking about that in the the kind of chat that we've got going on. How how does that sum how they up they do business? You kind of is it the is it the sustainable model versus the erratic model? So it's it's a model. So Rangers don't have a model. They make short term decisions, and then they kind of try and catch up. The the implications of those decisions they then almost have to deal with years and years later on. Uh, and so, for example. What, what do we calculate that over 10% of their revenue that was generated last year, over 10% of it has ended up being spent on litigation costs. So and there's mean, more to come. And, the, and there's more to come out. So imagine you're a club that's trying to keep up every pound of prison in terms of actually get that money into the squad to regenerate, to make us a stronger team to catch up with a team that's now streaks ahead of us. Oh, yeah, sorry, by the way, actually 10% of your overall budget is we actually have to hold that back to pay a bunch of lawyers because we've cocked up a number of different contracts. Um, I mean, I mean, every company will have some form of potential litigation risk. That's, but football clubs should not be losing 10% of their revenue purely on litigation costs and vast majority of these are all of their own making through dodgy deals through Hummel and um, sorry it wasn't Actually, a dodgy deal with Hummel it was a dodgy deal with Castori um, etc that upset Hummel and they've had to pull the plug and all the other various different, it's actually hard to keep up with the different legal cases that they've got ongoing at the moment but the fact that I mean, their fans should be going absolutely mental that the best part, effectively equivalent of a summer transfer windows, transfer kitty gets lost on spending on lawyers. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, and- but listen, like, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? This could end up being, you know, if Beale ends up having to double down on on a youth team, like they might end up going through a really difficult couple of seasons, but actually, if they have to stick with that because it's all they've got, you never know what can come out the other side. So it's not it's not like this is oh great news, guys. Celtic have got a free hit for three years. Like this is I, I disagree. You know, I, I, I disagree with that, and I'll tell you how and why I disagree with that. I disagree with that because if you give them uh, if they have to de- deal with youngsters, um. People won't go and see them anymore. I think yeah. they're, I think they're really fickle. So their kind of uh, match the income drops off. Their merchandising will drop off. I think I get I get the co- I get what you're tr- saying, Ian. All, that, all I'm know, saying is it's a, it's a it, it could cut both ways. It's just it's not it's not an open goal for us. Is, is all I'm saying. Yeah, um, Martin, can you talk to us about and this includes Celtic and maybe the whole rest of the league because I want to. We've got a good question from Liam. Um, the significance of turnover versus wage, the ra- the ratio. So, 
through various different exercises that I've done on football clubs and just reading up kind of academic study studies on healthy versus unhealthy football clubs, generally it's perceived that six up to sixty percent of your revenue being spent on player ex- or staff costs, uh, and I'm going to call it staff costs rather than Rangers first team costs because the really first number, but basically 60% is the kind of number. If you go above 60%, it kind of feels as if you spend an awful lot on wages relative to how much money you bring in. Yeah. Um, now Celtic, I think, are actually, I was surprised when I calculated it, I think they're at 67% for the period gone by. But, I mean, they've made a profit. So whatever, even though it feels slightly high in the grand scheme of things, it can't be too concerned, particularly when you know that they're going to have an even healthier year next year, this next financial year. And I would anticipate the ratio would come back down to uh, a number. And there is a way of looking at it where you're saying, well, Celtic decided to maintain spend on... Um, their staff because ultimately they believe that was the best way to succeed in. Now for Rangers, I think they're at 65%, which if you like for like, it's it's not a big difference, but the narrative behind it is almost, it feels like an, uh, a number that's unsustainable and it's also a number that's, part of the reason why they're continuing to make a loss year after year. Their revenue isn't as strong as Celtics, yet their investment in staff is still considerable and they've just not been able to find a balance that that strikes quite right. And it's probably one of the reasons why year after year they're posting this loss because they're well above that 60% um, threshold. So I know I'm kind of looking at it with... green tinted specs where it's basically Celtic Rangers both over the threshold, but I feel far more confident in Celtic's ability to manage that kind of threshold and not make it feel as if it's going to become a threat. Whereas from Rangers perspective, it does feel kind of uh, a red flag as to how they're managing their costs. And, and it's, it's probably important to note that we've, in the numbers for 21-22 for Celtic, we've probably had to pay off Neil Lennon and a number of his staff as well. And those costs will potentially be hit within the, those staff costs too. So potentially that's one of the reasons why that's it's slightly above what it usually is anyway. Interesting. Uh, Ian, you want to come in on that? No, it's, it's just it's just interesting times. Um, it, I, like As I say, this summer will we'll tell us Will tell us so much, and um, yeah, yeah. I, 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 we'll make it, if, you, if you want to laugh, though, so what Rangers do is they they say their first team squad um, re, um, salaries as a percentage of turnover is forty six percent or forty three percent or something like that. So they want to show a really really healthy number, but basically. What they've just done is just done purely first team squad. They've they've completely ignored all the other aspects or, or salaries that go on in terms of building a football club. So they probably even stripped out the costs of the management team and coaches, etc. So they've just tried to put a glossy number in there that's under fifty percent, but that number has zero substance whatsoever. If you go into the specific details and look at the actual overall um 
cost of staff, they are still at 65, 66%. And the thing is, and, and I know that you've not got analysts looking at football, like financial analysts looking at the, you know, oh yeah, we we think Celtic's a, a buy shared, like, you know, but analysts will see through that straight away. Like this is window dressing for for the fans. You know, it's nothing else but like, you know, they'll straight away go, oh, well, I just need to add that number and that number. Oh, Christ, that's 65. Well, well actually, like, they, because Rangers took a number of the Scottish government's loans under law, they're obliged to be providing more detail than they generally would do for um, for their accounts. So they're actually obliged to provide kind of quarterly cash flows and stuff. I imagine it's not all supposed to be public knowledge, but they are going to be under stricter rules in terms of what numbers they're publishing because they, you know, they owe the taxpayer money. Albeit, it's like a, it's unbelievable terms. I think you borrow. Three million quid, quid, and you get to pay it back over the course of like thirty years or something wow. like that. Amazing. Um, I've got a question. Uh, I want to bring in the question we've got from, and this kind of ties up. The reason we've kind of maybe went a little bit longer on Rangers is because obviously they are our biggest rivals, and um, you know the, the state of the league and the state of them kind of will affect us in some way or forth. Um, I just want to bring in uh, Liam's question. Um, hi, question for the biscuits in, please. Please, could you guys outline how Scottish football in general could maximise its revenue in order to improve its quality? We hear about the financial gap between us and them and the rest, but couldn't the other teams be utilising scouting, data and analytics a lot better in order to improve? Or is that easy for us to say when we're sat at the top? I ask as a Scottish football fan who wants to see a better league, but also from a Celtic perspective, I feel better competition would drive us on and also aid the coefficient. Um, I think Christian's always said for years, um, looking, comparing and looking at Norwegian teams and Scottish teams, Scottish teams, you know, from a European perspective, are in no way punching above. They're le- they're not even punching their level. Um, you know, the Celtic. You know, have at times punched above and at times dropped below. But you know, this is this is a going to be. Uh, we've got a project that we're going to be developing over the um, summer, and it's going to be called how how to fix Scottish football and we're going to be getting a lot of people kind of getting involved in it and we're going to get some rival kind of uh, podcast um, analysis and stuff but Martin we'll start with yourself what's your kind of it's a great question from Liam is there anything they can do to kind of bridge that gap I think certain clubs oh most clubs in Scottish football lose money but that is not a bad thing it's not a bad thing for clubs to lose to make a loss, if they continue to make profit, you kind of, particularly uh, in a small operation, we're going, why isn't that money continually being invested into the, the club? So what should be said is if you've got a large number of clubs that are making a loss, that means there's a number of individuals across Scotland that are helping prop up football teams. And football clubs are a key component of Scottish society. So as much as, it, you know, you can look at, look at it from a financial perspective and go, what are we doing? Why are we continuing to run a club that's making no money? It's you know these clubs are key components of you know society right across Scotland. So it, it shouldn't be underestimated that you know there's so many clubs are basically still running because somebody somewhere is happy to be the benefactor and pick up the the credit card bill on a monthly basis. So. You then also have examples where Motherwell and Hearts, it's basically the fans themselves that in addition to paying season ticket ticket money, they are putting in additional sums and, and 
both by owning the club, they they are picking up the tabs themselves. They're not leaning on anybody else to do that for them. So there's a lot to be said in terms of there's not a lot of money in Scottish football, but there's a lot of goodwill and people willing to actually do their best to keep their clubs on the road. Having said that, though, absolutely, money can be better spent. Money and it kind of feels as if we're Scottish football is very slow to pick up on trends that happen in the continent. We we kind of we revert back to type and continue to go down the usual paths rather than experiment. Um, and maybe it's the kind of general public or the media in Scotland, but you, you tend to get laughed at, or you, or you tend to get. Um, we we don't promote new thinking. We tend to mock it. So Postacoglu is an example where, you know, he got mocked because he didn't have a particular license. He got mocked because he'd never managed in Europe before. Never actually considered whether or not he was bringing fresh ideas or or something new to the game. I mean, I don't think anybody can argue that Postacoglu has been not just great for Celtic, but he's great for Scottish football as well. It's there, there's. Coaches across Scotland just now will be learning a lot from the, the tactics and his approach to to management. So, I think the way in which Scottish football can improve itself is being a bit more progressive in terms of bringing in more people with fresh ideas and not effectively not mocking them and not and giving them an environment where they feel confident to actually try something new rather than get on their case at the first moment where things go wrong. Does that make sense? It does, yeah, absolutely. Um, what yourself, uh, Ian? I think there's probably, <clears throat> I think there's a couple of things. I think, I think, for whatever reason, Scottish players are clearly, clearly quite on vogue at the minute in terms of Italy as an example. You've got Josh Doig, Lewis Ferguson um, going over and doing really well. And I actually think the rest of the Premiership needs to be looking at where's the where's the next ones that they can sell on, and it might not even be to the you know the middle of Serie A, maybe towards the bottom. But I think there's something there. I guess the other thing is that I mean, this this is going to sound awful to say, um, but Livingston as an example, I genuinely don't think they're sustainable as a team in the Premiership. I don't think they've got the fan base. I think when you see Martindale talking about that, like the wages that they can afford to pay for Nubly versus somebody else, it doesn't add up. And I think, you know, they, they, they've made significant losses. St Mirren have made losses, but made losses trying to do something different and actually trying to build out a community club and you know we're not going to give up three sides of our of our of our of our stadium you know we're going to we're going to take that hit and see how that plays out but i genuinely do think that that you know as we go through the leagues like you actually have to look at where where are the teams with a sustainable fan base that that can can maintain in the top flight, and I, I, I genuinely am not sure that Livingston are a team that can do that. Um, I don't know. Is that unfair? It's maybe very unfair. It might be a bit unfair, but you know, I, I just I, when you know, as, as just a fan, and I, I look at our performances, you know, outside of Celtic uh, and Rangers at points um, in Europe, and I just, I just cringe. Yeah. I just really, really cringe. You know, like hearts getting hearts getting scudded in the conference. Um, 
you know, will they make money from that? Certainly, you know, they they, they finished third in their group, so you could say, well, you know, the first time in a, a group stage for a long time. But the only reason they got in that group stage was because of the work that, you know, Celtic and Rangers had. Well, actually, at that point, it was just Celtic. But my point being, I, I just look at, I know Bodo Glimt is the one we always come back to, but, you know, he, I just couldn't ever see a Scottish team have, outside of Celtic or Rangers, ugh. but outside of them, I just couldn't see a, a Scottish team ever get out of a group or ever get a really big result or ever be developed enough to, you know, go at teams and, you know, and and I find it, I find it really depressing. That's why we're going to do this series of how we can fix Scottish football. But Martin, it's, it's, does it, is it beyond the realms of possibility that Hearts could go into a group stage and, you know, shock everyone by performing to a better standard than they did? Well, put this way, Postacoglu wasn't out of reach for Aberdeen or Hearts two or three years ago. Yeah. So all it takes is to think outside the box and bring in somebody who, I mean, you're you're taking a punt, but quite frankly, you take a punt all the time with managers. Aberdeen, you know, could have potentially found an attractive way of bringing in Postacoglu and Postacoglu would have been able to have developed a squad whether they be able to hang on from hang on to him for long, who knows? But I don't doubt that if he he would have been a potential candidate if Aberdeen or Hearts or somebody else is willing to really extend themselves and think about it. So, and I don't, I also don't doubt that there isn't Postacoglu is a one off. There must be other managers that are across the globe who are of a, a similar mindset that are able to deliver. So I just think Scotland, just in general has been very, very poor at being willing to bring in fresh ideas and new approaches and continues to revert to type. Yeah. So, uh, uh, But all it takes is, you know, a couple of cubs to catch on to and go, yeah, well, why, not, why don't we take a risk on a guy who's in Japan or a guy who's in Australia? Why don't we do this and why don't we really back him and, and just see where we get to? Because... What's the what's the difference between doing that and bringing in Derek McInnes for a couple of years and just watching shite football? Like, so what? Like, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I think I think the third place team in Scotland again this year will get the opportunity to play in a group stage, and you know that's a massive, massive kind of you know opportunity. Um, but you look, look um, Aberdeen have got Barry Robson as their manager currently. You know, I know it's short term. You know, Hearts have got rid of Nielsen. <coughs> Gets, I just think if they ha- think outside the box, as, as you say, Martin, because, you know, try something a little bit different because what's the worst that could happen? The same shit over and over again because that's what seems to be happening. Um, final question uh, before we kind of we'll, we'll round up. It's from Troy. Uh, hi, lads. Hope you're all well. Be interested to know the variety of ways transfer fees are organised. Does all of the fee go into the selling club? Is agent's fee included? Does the player get any of the fee? Is a signing on fee standard? And how do they decide the sell-on clauses? Martin, you've got some news on this, noise on this? I'm going to give you a level of detail that nobody's going to be interested in. How about that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. So let's go back to pre-Bosman. Players were sold regardless of whether contracts are up. You could generate transfer fees. Post-Bosman, if a player's contract is up, you can get a transfer fee. 
clubs got upset about that because they were saying, well, why should I develop players if they're just going to let a club contracts run down and they get no money for it why should I have an academy why should I do any of this sort of stuff and over the course of time it did become apparent that um, teams at a lower level were missing out because in essence their players were being lifted by other teams academies and when those players were then subsequently sold out of their academies to other teams the guys who had brought them up from the ages of sort of 12 to 21 or whatnot were missing out on funds and, and FIFA kind of recognised that and they've ruled out a couple of things but the way it's kind of landed now and I think I can't remember, I think it was last summer that it probably kicked in is in essence each if a player say it's all about a player that uh, that moves to an overseas league so a player in Scotland is sold to England of the transfer fee paid by the English team is is going to be sent to a clearinghouse. And then the clearinghouse then, and and all kind of major football associations have had to sign up to this and get it all sorted. But in essence, the clearinghouse contains information as to where that player was trained between the ages of 15 and I think it's 21 or whatnot. And then they take the 5% and they carve it up based on, well, okay, you had two years at Aloha, you had two years at Motherwell, and you had two years at Celtic. So that 5% is allocated out. So Aloha get, in essence, a fraction of the transfer fee. Motherwell get a fraction, Celtic get a fraction. Um, Now, obviously, it sounds sounds great when you've got big mega transfer fees. So there's the potential there that, say, say, for example, um, like David Turnbull, we got ten million for him. Five percent of ten million is um, what five hundred grand. Majority of that would probably end up landing on. Uh, have I got my maths right there, Ian? Sounds about right. Yep. yep. Yeah. So you're, you're flying. Vast yep. majority. Vast majority of that five hundred grand would be going to Motherwell because that's where he learned his trade. Um, now that sounds very similar to sell-on clauses, etc. This is, in essence, nailing down, uh, and the clearinghouse is critical to this because it's, in, in essence, ensuring that every single player within each of these football associations is recorded, and basically it makes it very easy. The money, rather than, get, rather than sending the money, the transfer funds, back to Celtic for Celtic to go for fuck's sake, right? He was there for blah, 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 and he was there and he's there, right? He's the number to Aloha. What's what's their backs details, right? Fuck, right. Okay. Um, in essence, each of the football stations taking care of that have loaded all the information onto the FIFA clearinghouse. So the, the five percent gets sent to clearinghouse. The clearinghouse automatically distributes it. That just makes sure that it solves another problem that was occurring, whereby football teams were being owed sums of money by other clubs, but the money wasn't moving very fast enough, and it's always the small clubs that get shafted. Um, I think that's so, Hacks Abanovich is involved in a one of those. It's, just, it, it's not, it's like his two previous clubs are fighting yeah. it out about um, clauses. Yeah. So that's, that's a new system that's been put in place that is hopefully going to mean that teams, it, it's going to incentivize teams to still want to train academy players and yeah. then subsequently bring them on and then move them through. And hopefully it means that. 
um, teams in Scotland and all across the globe who are very, very good at creating young talent. Whilst they probably lose that talent pretty quickly, hopefully they'll start to recoup some more money from the, the, the amount of investment they've put into developing those players. Now, that's that's one element. You will still get sell-on fees, etc., that are bolted into contracts, etc. I think what they'll do just now, instead, though, is the sell-on fee will now have to factor in the 5% that's already been kind of hived off and going into the clearinghouse. Um, I think another question that was posed, um, that Troyes asked, was around who pays the agent fees. Yeah. Um, so like, agent fees, like, uh, I think because they're so close to the English market, like agent fees are like, oh my God, agents must spend fortunes, et cetera, et cetera. The vast majority of transfers across the world don't require agents. It's just like because English football is agent heavy and there's billions of pounds being spent, et cetera. But more often than not, it would be the player, it would be the purchasing club that would covering the cost of the agent fee. However, football clubs, when selling a player, may also decide to employ an agent because maybe they want, they're actually wanting to sell, proactively sell the player, so they're using an agent to actually go out and find the buyer. Yeah. So it might, it might be that actually the selling club has to pay an agent, etc. And then you'll have other agents where the clubs are like, oh, for fuck's sake, there's too many chefs here, this is a dog's dinner, if you want that person involved, fine, but it's coming out your own pocket, so the player then has to cover the cost of it. So individual contracts, et cetera, but then, uh, in principle, agent fees, et cetera. I mean, obviously Celtic players will have agents, but a large proportion of um, Scottish football players, when they move clubs, they'll be just using the players association. What's it called? The... Um, you know one that, was it Fraser Wishart or whatnot? The, the PFA, like or the SPFA? Yeah, they, they'll basically be using that, which is the equivalent of a union, just to support them to make sure that they are, they have a representative there to look at the contract and go, oh, bloody hell, you are getting paid vastly less than what is the going rate for a right back at Kilmarnock. So, yeah, you should probably get that checked, etc. So, those, that's the, probably the, the main kind of thing to call out. Was, was there anything else that kind of Troy put into his question? Did, yeah, uh, just uh, signing on fees. Are they standard? Well, as in a, a bonus to the player when they're... When they're signing, yeah. Um, I would say it's... That's probably one of your ways that you need to... Well, there's two reasons you would do it. One would be to if you were in a bidding war and you need to incentivize a guy to come and join you ahead of somebody else, you you give him a kickback to, to get him through the door. The other option would be you are maybe cash rich in the summer, say, for example, because you've just had a windfall from a transfer fee and you want to bring a player in, but you know that your current wage structure would mean it's unsustainable to pay the guy 50 grand a week but you can afford 30 grand a week so you say to him well I'll give you a million pound sign on fee which if you add it to your 30 grand a week would bring you up to the equivalent of what you would earn elsewhere so it comes down I would say it comes down to more the individual you're trying to entice and it's a, it's a tool that you would use 
but it's not necessary. I mean, probably most players do now expect some form of sending on fee, but the scale of which is dependent on how you're utilising it in order to entice them through the door. Absolutely. Uh, listen, this has been, we've went way over. <laughs> we, were, we were aiming for an hour, we've done 120, but uh, what can you do? Um, Ian, any kind of final thoughts? No, um, I was just, when Martin was saying that, I was uh, like how relatively straightforward football contracts are compared to NFL contracts. Which... I was reading about cap hits and the 49ers try to sign Nick Bosa. Oh my God. Like, like that, that we'd have about 10 hours just on. <laughs> On that. Um, um, this has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, we had a lot more to talk about tonight, but as we say, we always kind of get caught down these sort of um, interesting discussions. Uh, we've got a couple of episodes coming up that are already planned out. Um, we've got one, we'll, we'll kind of look at um, our, our, our a fantastic uh, subscriber and friend, Alan Reed, has done some amazing analysis. We'll, we'll bring that up maybe in the next couple of episodes as well because it's really, really good. Um, but We've got plenty to kind of look forward to as we move on. And, you know, we'll, we'll, as I say, we'll do one up one a month, but if there might be need for maybe two, and we'll certainly uh, let you know about that. But it's been an absolute joy and honour. Uh, Ian Dugan, thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Martin Field, pleasure as always. Yep, thank you. Hopefully my audio is not quite as bad as it was first thing, but thanks for having me. Absolutely perfect. Uh, from Martin Friel, from Ian Dugan, from myself, Chris Gallagher, this has been The Biscuit Tin, and we'll speak to you down the road.